1: Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird Podcast, exploring life, one story at a time. Hello, friends. I'm Daniel Sherl. Today on the show, this is so cool, because when it comes to the need for speed, he's the real deal. As a fighter jet pilot for the United States Navy for nearly 25 years, he flew the F-A-18 Hornet and Super Hornet and the F-16. He accrued almost 4,000 flight hours, over 700 carrier landings, and served as both a Top Gun instructor and Air Wing operations officer. Today, this family man flies for one of the major airlines and hosts his own awesome podcast called, appropriately, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. There, he explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. And you should absolutely subscribe. I'm so excited to chat with this amazing man and fellow podcast host about all things jets, life in the skies, what it feels like to be in control of something moving 1,200 miles an hour, and what his experiences around the globe have taught him about life back here on Earth. Please welcome... Vincent Aiello. Vincent, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Daniel. I think I should pay you after that. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So first
0: question, let's uh, jump
1: back to earth for a minute. Where were you born and raised?
0: I was born in the Los Angeles area and spent my first nine years there and then raised up on the central coast near Pismo Beach. and uh, went back to Southern California for college and everybody's kind of moved away so I don't really call it home anymore I guess I'm a man without a home but that's where I was born and spent my
1: childhood that's cool and what was little Vincent like as a child oh he was the younger of two older brothers and an
0: older sister and uh, my mother says I always used to do what they told me to do kind of thing so I think the military was probably a good spot for me and uh, <laughs> so
1: you were, you were a good kid
0: I think so. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, I had my moments. I'm sure most kids do, but yeah, I think so.
1: When you look back on your life today, uh, is there some trait that you still have that you think is distinctly Southern California?
0: Well, you introduced my podcast uh, when you introduced me. Thanks very much. And we recently hit our 100th episode and I asked everybody for what their favorite episodes were and their favorite guests and all that. And then I let them take a stab at me. I said, what are your favorite or worst uh, isms of mine? <laughs> And a a bunch of folks did say my California isms. So apparently I took a page from Bill and Ted and I say excellent and awesome and all those adjectives a lot and exclamations.
1: And so, (laughs) yeah, I guess it's it's just me. That's funny. So uh, when and how did you become interested in aviation? Well, uh, my mother
0: and father divorced when I was very young. And my mother ended up uh, marrying another gentleman who had a very technological interest. And so he had, his father was an army major and so he was raised around the military and and he wanted to go to air shows because he loved the technology. He told me later, he really thought the AIM-9 Sidewinder display was the most fascinating thing ever because he remembers the guy held up a cigarette lighter and the, the little missile on display there would, would track it back and forth. And my stepdad thought that was the most amazing thing. Well, meanwhile, while he's looking at the technology, my mouth is agape looking up at all the aircraft and the sound and the, you know, the swagger of the pilots. And so I became enamored with the whole idea of being a military pilot at a young age. And, and for me, that, that set it in motion.
1: That's incredible. I think air shows are amazing, by the way, and I'd love to give props to them because uh, they're such wonderful things for people to go and experience. There's nothing like feeling it in your chest, you know, when these aircraft go by. It's a very different experience than seeing it on television. You
0: know, Daniel, I think we could spend almost our entire scheduled time here together talking about that because not only do you you experience it, which is so impactful for people, but it's also the opportunity for young people to maybe have a sparklet. And there's always this, oh, it's a waste of money or, oh, why do we have this or that? And the noise. But uh, you know, I read a lot of military books and I've had a lot of folks on my show, and a lot of them did get their start from an air show, like I did. And so I think it's a it's a worthy cause to attract young men and women who want to serve in that capacity.
1: Well, for the listeners, because I think many people don't know and are interested as I am to hear, what is the reader's digest kind of summary version of how somebody goes from just enlisting in the Navy to then sitting in there in a cockpit of their fighter jet? How and how long is that journey?
0: Yeah, well, if, if you don't mind me uh commenting on semantics, Daniel, I will tell you, when you when you enlist in the Navy, think of that as the folks that go straight from high school into the Navy, and they have the more, got to choose my words carefully, but the basic jobs, you know, you'll, you could almost say the menial jobs, but I, I certainly don't mean to impugn their honor. These people serve, but it's, it's a different category than officers. Officers are the college graduates, and pilots mm-hmm. in the military, with the exception of the Army, are all officers. And so you have to start with a degree, and it's a four-year bachelor's. It doesn't necessarily have to be in something technical, but they all prefer it. You can also go to one of the service academies, the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And so you have to become an officer first. And, and that just terminology-wise is different than enlisting. So. Forgive me for the...
1: No, that's really good to know, actually. Yeah,
0: that's fine. Now, to be fair, some people do enlist in the military and then become officers and go on to be fighter pilots. So uh, it is important to distinguish that. At any rate, uh, I I will give you my experience since uh, that's the one I lived. So once I decided this was what I wanted to do for a living and why not try it instead of just wishing and dreaming about it, My stepdad helped me um, put in an application for the Naval Academy, which was denied. And so I said, all right, well, what else can I do? And you can either go to college on your own and then go to Officer Candidate School in the Navy or Officer Training School, I think it is, OTS for the Air Force. And in my case, I said, well, I'm gonna need some help getting through college. So why don't I put in for ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is a leftover from, I believe, World War II. But the idea is you go to a civilian college while you're there, you play soldier or airman or or sailor for a day or two with uniforms and you take the appropriate courses. And when you graduate from college, you're also commissioned into either the Navy, Marine Corps or the Air Force. And so that's your first step. Then you go to flight school and uh, then you go to the different parts of it. And then maybe later, you after a couple of years of flight school, you end up in a fighter jet. So from high school graduate, of course, it's four years. Once you're a college graduate, it's about maybe two years before you first get in well not before you first get in but before you're at, you know flying a frontline fighter let's say so 6 years that's
1: incredible yeah so when you get into a fighter jet and you're now you're you're an officer and you're a trained pilot do you guys are you assigned a specific aircraft or do you guys share aircraft
0: well sort of both right so when you're done with flight school and you earn your wings then you are, are assigned a particular type of aircraft. So in my case, it was the F-A-18 Hornet. And so I went to training in El Toro, Southern California. The base is now closed. It's near Irvine. And I learned to fly the F-A-18, A, A, B, C, and D. And those are just four different models that are very similar. And so when I then got to my first squadron in Florida, then we had 12, I think it was, aircraft that were all roughly the same. And we shared those, but it was one type of aircraft.
1: So in the movies, when you see the call sign on the aircraft, is that do you guys swap those out and do you actually have the call sign on the plane or no?
0: No. So what you do is you have a squadron's worth of aircraft and you usually have more pilots than there are aircraft. So the, the front runners, if you will, the commanding officer and the executive officer and a few others will have their names on both sides. But the lower rank you get the less likely you are to have your name on there because there's just not enough spots or you might have your name on one side and another pilot might have his name on the other. And let's say that happens to be number 406 was mine for a little while. Well, on any given day, you fly whatever aircraft is ready based on the operational schedule and what maintenance has for you. And so it's Mm. not always 406, it could be 401 or 410. And in Hollywood, I think they realize very quickly that they'll confuse people. If you see, you know, Lieutenant... Vincent Aiello uh, flying in a jet that has Lieutenant somebody else's name. Uh, you yeah. know, so they keep it simple and, and put them in the <laughs> in the jets with their names on them. Now, the more I That's read, though, about earlier fighter pilots, the more I recognize that there was a time when there was an aircraft and a crew chief, as they called it, or a, a plane captain, as we would call it in the Navy, who was assigned to that particular to pilot. So the pilot and the aircraft and the crew chief were all – matched and you didn't switch. But these days you fly whatever's ready.
1: I know this is a very broad question, but is there something about training to be a pilot that most people don't know that you wish they did?
0: Well, I think what surprises people who want to do it, Uh, If I may take that question in that direction is especially in the Navy and the Marine Corps is how good of a swimmer and how comfortable in the water you need to be. And that makes sense, of course, because we fly around aircraft carriers surrounded by water. And so if we eject, we could very well end up in the water. Or if we are in a helicopter and we ditch, we might end up in the water. And so I was fortunate that I played water polo in high school. So the water never bothered me. In fact, you know, I was used to someone. Physically trying to drown me, let alone passive gear that was just <laughs> heavy on me trying to drown me. And so I never had any trouble, but there were many people who struggled with you put all that gear on and they dump you in the water and they have different contraptions and devices to drag you around as if your parachute was dragging you over the water or uh, they put you in this diabolical big metal container that's supposed to be like a helicopter and they strap you in. Sometimes they'll even put darkened out visors or a uh, swim goggles on you and they'll dunk you in the water, turn you upside down. And when the motion stops, you're supposed to count to two or three and then unstrap and find your way out. And so that really wow. gets some people uh who
1: aren't ready for that.
0: Yeah, that would be crazy. <laughs> it is. And then you have to do it every so many years afterwards.
1: Wow. So like recertifying for anything. That's mm-hmm. crazy. That's right. Uh, what was the most difficult part of training for you personally?
0: Oh I struggled a little bit when I was flying the T two Buckeye with my landings because in the Navy we always treat every landing as if you're at the carrier. So so you have the correct attitude on the aircraft, you're at the correct spot in, in space, and then you come down the glide slope, and you look at the very same lights at a field runway that you may see later when you go to the carrier. And I had a, I had a time where I wasn't particularly good at that, and so I got a, a refly, a do-over, if you will. The other thing I would say is it just comes very fast. So just when you're starting to get the hang of one thing man you're on to the next thing and it's mm. it's you know like the proverbial taking a drink from a fire hose they they don't uh, <laughs> they don't they don't sit around and wait for you to master it you're on to the next thing quickly.
1: Well let's talk about G's or G force for a minute yeah. for those who don't know listening to the show I'm going to give you the dictionary definition here. G force is a measure of acceleration. 1G is what we generally feel from the force of gravity keeping our feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. The average person can handle about 5G's which you can hit on a really good roller coaster. But... Pilots can pull up to nine G's, I believe is correct. Uh, Can you describe the sensation of pulling these larger G forces? And do you have to wear a G suit to to do so?
0: Well, just to put a finer point on how many G's we can pull, most aircraft are designed to go to about nine because they figure that is the peak G pilots can sustain. I've had guests on my podcast that have talked about pulling 10. I think there was an F-15 that even pulled 14. And when you are in the heat of the moment, if it's either that or you hit the i think your body's going to do what it needs to do but yeah doing that on a routine basis is going to be pretty tough when i went to the centrifuge in south texas i had uh i even took a picture but i won't share it with you because it's kind of disturbing but a lot of the blood vessels (laughs) in my derriere burst and so my rear end was purple because of all the blood that was forced down into the seat that was uh, excuse me into my bottom that was planted firmly on the seat and so to answer your question yes you do wear a g-suit and that helps squeeze the blood from your torso and your legs back up into your brain where it's needed. And it, it's one of these things, like, I don't know what else, driving a car, if you ever got car sick as a kid, but then you build a tolerance. I don't know, maybe if you drink alcohol, when you're first new at it, you drink one beer and you got a buzz, but later on you can have a couple and it doesn't bother you. You build mm. a tolerance. And you get to the point where it's more of a nuisance than anything. Um, But it's something where they do train you repeatedly in how to stay in front of it because it it can kill people. And I'm glad to say that there is technology that's starting to come around where if the aircraft senses that the pilot has not made any control inputs after some very high G's, then it will recover if it's going towards the ground. And that's a good thing because a lot of people do pass out and uh, and and impact the ground which is tragic have you ever
1: blacked out or thrown up from g-forces
0: i was air sick at first in training and uh, i got over that relatively quickly although even towards the end i could still get a little queasy at times depending on what i was doing believe it or not even with uh, thirty-eight hundred thirty eight hundred flat hours um I don't remember ever completely passing out. So just to, again, put a fine point on this. You have the G-induced loss of consciousness, G-lock, and then you have the A-lock, which is the almost loss of consciousness. And I had that quite frequently. I would One of the clues or cues they teach you to uh, watch out for is as you pull a lot of Gs, you, you begin getting tunnel vision. So your vision begins to come in from the sides and narrow down kind of like Luke Skywalker as he was about ready to bomb the Death Star. You remember that little thing he was looking at? Yeah. It comes in from the sides. Your vision does that in gray. And I would get to the point, Daniel, I know this sounds crazy, but I would get to the point where my left eye would go gray, and my right eye just had this small opening left, and I used to call it my terminator like targeting eyeball i could just <laughs> ease the pull just ever so slightly and keep it so i just had this soda straw vision <laughs> and, and if i did it right i could move my head around and use just that one little cue there to keep track of what was happening and and uh, try to make sure i was uh, in the dogfight still but yeah that it, Man, it's crazy what the human body can do
1: that's amazing <laughs> so do you get on a roller coaster and think to yourself oh this is child's play oh i love roller coasters you know why <laughs> because you're not in control. Oh. See, so when you're in control, that's fun. And,
0: and, and don't get me wrong. I do love that. But when you're on a roller coaster, you're, you're at the whims of the roller coaster. And the best experience I've ever had, Daniel, with a roller coaster is we went to Silver Dollar City in Missouri. You probably know about this place, right? Oh, I know it well. Yeah, <laughs> they've got that massive wooden roller coaster, right? I forget the name of it. But it's like, I think got the steepest drop of any wooden roller coaster. Well, we went one year after I'd been there years before. And I expected that it was going to do something because I thought it was a different roller coaster, but it ended up doing something totally unexpected. And it was the biggest thrill I've ever had because... It just, it was the surprise of it. So yeah, when you're not in control, there's something fun about that. And yeah, I still love roller coasters. Plus I have boys. So, you know, when we go, that's what we do all day long. And my poor wife can do about (laughs) two or three and she's done.
1: (laughs) Well, this may sound, excuse me, this may sound like a silly question, but how hard is it to steer and fly a jet? I mean, how does it compare to like, you know, driving a car or some other vehicle?
0: Well, a car, so there are three axes, right, in flying. And it's hard to do this on an audio-only format. But, you know, imagine you have a car. When you steer the car left and right, uh, that is the yaw, effectively. And I'm probably messing up the terms, but you get the idea here. I guess that's what lateral uh, direction. But anyway, so when you go left and right in a, steer, in a car with a steering wheel, that is with uh, the steering wheel. But in, a, in an airplane, that's actually with your feet. And you only do that on the ground or on the flight deck of the aircraft carrier. So you actually steer an aircraft with your feet. Uh, Airliners have a little tiller that they use, but in a fighter, it's with your feet. But you don't generally do that in flight. What you do in flight is you instead either roll or you pitch. Right. So imagine your car driving down the road. You can steer it left and right. But imagine all of a sudden it began rolling left and right. And you see this sometimes in awful accidents. Well, that is roll. But then also, if you were to go off a jump and the nose goes up, that's pitch. And so in an aircraft, what you do is you roll, let's say, to the left. In angle of bank, and then you pull back on the stick, and that is how you turn to the left, not just by yawing to the left like you do in a car. So, And this is it's like different.
1: when it turns and... Correct. Mm-hmm.
0: And so anyone who's watched an air show or seen an airplane on Top Gun or, you know, behind enemy lines or one of these movies, y- you see what I'm talking about. Hard to describe it, easy to understand. And, and so... You learn that very early on in, in your flight training. If you don't grasp that, then, you know, they're going to have problems with you right away. But it's funny because when my, (laughs) when my kids uh, like, you know, I don't know what kind of computer you use, but I use a a Mac with a, a, with a big trackpad, and I move my two fingers towards me, like pulling back, if you will, to make it go up. And one of my kids is the opposite of that. And I always get on him just for fun. Like, oh, come on, you're never going to be a pilot. You don't go, you don't go forward (laughs) to go up, you pull back to go up.
1: And so I think that's just one of those pilot things. And it, it makes sense so walk us through a typical day as a pilot when you're in active duty
0: well i mean first off daniel there's no such thing as a typical day i mean if i am uh in the navy uh, as again with my experiences that's what i'll share with you and we were shore based and we were just let's say we'd been home from deployment for a couple months and we weren't even thinking about working up for a couple months you might roll in at eight or nine in the morning take care of some admin business you know you might you know, go over to the weapons school and see what's new over there. You might have some meetings. Oh, yay! We get to fly. You go do some training for a couple hours. You come back. You debrief it. You wrap it up, and hopefully, you're home by dinner. Totally different story. A couple months before that, when you were on the aircraft carrier, because guess what? You're trapped on the carrier. So, you wake up. You're on a ship. You put your uniform on. If you're lucky, you can squeeze in a quick workout or go do something. But you go to the wardroom where they are going to serve you. Whatever it is, they've decided to serve you. So appetites don't matter. You get what you get. And then um, if you're lucky, you get to fly once, maybe twice, because it's an escape from the fun jail of the carrier. Uh, (laughs) But when you're not flying, you might be planning a mission. You might be talking to the maintenance department or the young sailors and Marines who maintain your aircraft for you. Uh, You might go and talk to some of the ship folks for different things. Um, So there's always something that you're doing. And guess what? You're never off duty. Uh, unless the ship pulls in in a port where you can have some liberty for a little while. So that's nice. Uh, You can't go out to the bar because there are none on American carriers or Navy ships in general at the end of the night. Uh, Again, if you can get a workout, that's great. If you've got some friends and you can go watch a movie or blow off some steam playing uh, some games or something, that's great. But otherwise, you're pretty much working full time. And so uh, it just depends on where you are and what you're doing. If you're in training, then you're preparing Missions. If you're over off uh, potentially enemy territory, then you're thinking about potential real world missions.
1: Generally, when something comes in where you have to fly a combat mission, an actual or or you're over enemy territory or whatnot, mm-hmm. I know there are surprises, but in general, is this a pre-planned thing that they say, "Hey, tomorrow we're going to run this thing," or is it like woo, 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 emergency getting <laughs> your plane? You know, <laughs> well, there's both, right? So uh, we have different alert status
0: uh, measures, and the idea is. Depending on the potential threat, we might have people as, as well, we might have airborne, right? So if, if we think there's an imminent attack on us, we're going to have aircraft airborne to defend the carrier and the strike group. If we think eh, probably nothing's going to happen, but it could, and it's an enemy that we're not too sure about how wily they're going to get, well, we might have aircraft that are cocked and ready on the deck but they're not running. There's just pilots sitting in them and they could go in as little as five or seven minutes. Then you might have an aircraft that's ready, but the guys down in, guys or gals, of course, down in the ready room, but they have their flight gear on so they can be upstairs and ready to go. That's called Alert 15 And I once launched from that in as little as seven minutes, I ran upstairs, jumped in, strapped in, started up, took off, and it only took me seven minutes. So we can get going pretty quickly. Wow! And I've even sat in the jets for you know hours at a time, and you hope they'll launch you, and then they never do, and so you get out, and the next guy takes over, and sure enough, they launch him, and you just you know get mad <laughs> at any rate, uh, and then you could have alert 30 or 60 or 120 and those are just minutes and that's just hey look we've got an aircraft with some bombs or weapons on it but we don't expect anything to happen but hey this is the modern world so if they need to upgrade someone from alert 60 to 30 or 15 well then whoever's on that alert get ready to go put your gear on and, and, and uh, be ready just in case.
1: Well, I'm curious, what's the most difficult maneuver that you've done in a fighter jet?
0: Well, it, it wasn't dropping the bomb on the AAA sites that were shooting on me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that was like a milk run, dare I say. I would say the most difficult thing that I did, and I would argue anyone can do, is land a high fighter on an aircraft carrier at night when the ship is moving because if you think about a runway right we've all flown commercial and if you fly from los angeles to seattle guess what the airport is not anywhere other than where you expect it to be and the runways are there. And you not, really
1: hope it's not moving. Yeah, that's right. And it
0: could be, <laughs> it could be windy. It could be rainy, but the runways there and it's really, really long. But when you're landing on an aircraft carrier, it's only about a 300 foot, 400 foot landing area. And oh, by the way, you're passing up some of it anyway, because you don't want to land on the very back end of it. And you, you land in a wire and it pulls you to a stop at about 200 feet from 130 knots, and it's violent. It's a controlled crash. And the aircraft that are designed to do that have to be very strong to, to withstand that. Well, now take that. Does it hurt? Uh, no, not really. It's kind of exhilarating, okay. but it's it's always... You know, is it like a little bit of whiplash when you get, you get thrown
1: backwards you, or anything? Well, you get flo- you...
0: thrown forward because the aircraft is being pulled oh, yeah, to a yeah, halt, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but now, add some some movement in the ship, right? Now this ship, by the way, is ninety-eight thousand tons. It's almost a thousand feet long. If you stood it on its tail, it'd be taller than the Empire State Building in in Manhattan. That's crazy. But in right seas, that thing will move. And there is a particular occasion that is chronicled in the 2008 PBS carrier special where they had some particularly heinous seas one night. And uh, I was on that ship and they were out there filming when I came back and landed. It took me three tries because the carrier, which is normally, Mm -hmm. let's call it at zero, right? If it's just stable. Well, the deck was the back of the ship was moving up 20 feet and down 20 feet. So it's about 40 foot swings. And wow. it took me three tries to land because the first time I missed the whole carrier. I just didn't even, my wheels didn't touch down. Second time I touched down, but beyond the wires and missed them all. And the third time, by the grace of God and paddles, I, uh, I landed in the wires and came to a halt and went down below and they stuck a camera in my face. And I'm glad that I said anything <laughs> intelligent because that for me was the most <laughs> scary, scariest thing I've ever done.
1: And are there three wires on the
0: deck? There's three on some ships. There's four on the Nimitz, uh, which what was I on that night? Yeah, that was the Nimitz. And then back in the old days, we, we had a fellow on our show when he used to land on carriers that were straight and not with an angle to them. And they would have 12 or 15
1: wires. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, Vincent, what is your favorite part of flying?
0: Well, that's hard to say i mean there's so many things uh the flying itself just the the majesty of flight especially towards sunset or sunrise sunset's a little easier because you're not so tired <laughs> but um just being up there where you're observing a sunset that nobody else in the world gets to see at that moment unlike being on some pier right by the ocean with a 100 other people that are watching it um it's, it's, as I like to say, it's as close to the hand or face of God as you can get in this lifetime. And, uh, but also just when you fly that, that power and control, you know, we talked earlier about how it's thrilling to be out of control on a roller coaster, but to be in control, when you have the agility of a modern fighter and the excess thrust of the afterburners or reheat as some folks call it, it there's nothing like it. It's, you know, I, it's there's nothing like it. If you ride a, a motorcycle, you probably have a rough idea. When you twist the throttle, usually motorcycles respond very quickly. This is like that, but times 10, and uh, it's, it's amazing. But the other thing why I hesitated at the beginning is as fun as all that is, what really keeps people around, I think, is the camaraderie of the other people who do it. And the men and women, mm. the boys and girls, I shouldn't say that, but just to distinguish the younger folks who, who maintain the aircraft, it's 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 impressive. I, I, I love it. I miss it. I don't get that in my airline capacity. It's noble. It's honorable. And it's, it's wonderful. So all those things make it worthwhile. To anyone who might be wondering if a pursuit in such a field is for them, I say absolutely yes, go do it. Because if you find you don't like it, well, after some amount of time, they'll let you go. But if you are working in some nine to five job in an office and you look out your window and see a military aircraft go by, you're always going to wonder why.
1: What's the fastest you've flown? I was close
0: to Mach 2 in the F-16. I think it was about 1.93. And by the time I got to that, I was at the far end of our training range and I'd used up most of my gas. And when I looked inside because I was prosecuting some (laughs) fighters, I was the pretend bad guy. I looked inside at my fuel and suddenly air was rushing through my teeth as I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I better knock off and head back to base. Uh, I, I don't know what the ground speed was on that, but Uh, Almost twice the speed of
1: sound. Is there? Does it feel any different to go a thousand miles an hour than it does to go four hundred miles an hour?
0: You know what I tell people is, when you're on the highway, and you're doing seventy miles an hour, and you look out at a hill or a mountain in the distance, and you think, "That sucks," that they're going by at all. But then suddenly, a speed limit sign goes whizzing by five feet away. It's all that relative distance, right? So when I'm doing Mach two at thirty-three thousand feet in an F-16 and I shouldn't put it that way because I didn't quite do that, but you get the point. Other than the, the rumble on the, on the airframe and the air going over the canopy that you can sense, there's really no sensation of speed. Now, that's what's fun about mm-hmm. flying by the clouds because then you get that. But when you're doing a low level or you're flying close to the ground or skimming, you know, something fun like boats all over the water or whatever. Then you get that speed limit sign uh, sensation I told you about. And that's a lot of fun. So even 300, 400 knots, it's fun when you're close to the ground or the water.
1: Now, your call sign is Jello, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how do pilots get their call signs? Is it given to them by someone else? Do you create your own? Is it is it a rite of passage? <laughs> is, it, is it mandatory to have a call sign to fly?
0: Well, Daniel, I would refer you and your listeners to episode two of the Fighter Pilot Podcast from January 1st, 2018, where we covered this ad nauseum. And,
1: well, then uh, I'll tell you what, you know what? Then, then don't answer, because it'll give my listeners something else to go listen to, and then they can go find out for themselves. All right, I love there's it.
0: your homework. It, but I, will, I will promise you it's worth listening to. It's, it's quite funny.
1: Do pilots generally have an understanding of the mechanics of their aircraft? I know there's a team that supports you, um, but like, you know, could you ever get down there and assist if there was a problem or are you just hands on the controls only and not involved in the mechanics?
0: Well, yes and no to all of that. And I don't mean to vacillate, but we are expected to understand the different systems in our fighters very well, because if there's a problem, you want to know, oh, it's isolation valve by closing this or opening that, that that means I'll lose my landing gear, but not my flaps, et cetera. So you want to know your systems, hydraulics, engines, life support, flight controls, armament, all those things. As far as Getting out and lending a hand, no, because you have to be qualified to do that. And uh, not to say other people don't understand how to remove an engine or do things. There are probably pilots who understand all that real well. I never did. And so uh, to, to go down to maintenance and say, hey, I want to help you change this engine or whatever. I mean, they might give you a menial task to do um, that they could supervise you doing. But no, you're not out there turning wrenches.
1: Well, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a very good driver, but I have no idea how an engine actually if it breaks down, how to fix it. I mean, I just, you know, I understand the the general concepts of automobiles, but I don't, you know, I could change an oil maybe. Well, and and not to go on too
0: big a tangent, Daniel, but 40, 50 years ago, it was very easy to understand it. Uh, But cars these days are so advanced. Plus there's no room to crawl in under the hood anymore. You know, you used to be able to get your body in there and figure out what's wrong and adjust the points or change the spark plugs or whatever. And
1: now it takes a PhD, it feels like. (laughs) So, okay, fun question. What happens if you have to go to the bathroom and you're in the middle of a flight?
0: We'll preempt that by saying the first thing you do before you go to the equipment place and put on your flight gear is go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you, you want to take care of it. And if there's any hint of number two, then you definitely spend a few minutes and make sure that, okay, that's, that's not a problem. It's, it's really not an issue or okay, good. Now I'm evacuated. And so off we go. Um, we have what are called piddle packs and there are, uh, some YouTube videos around. I was going to do one and someone else beat me to it. Uh, so I might still, but eventually, uh, it wasn't going to be a demonstration. Don't get me wrong. It was just going to be an explanation, but um, imagine a little rolled up plastic bag with very thick plastic where there's an opening that you can uh, unzip your flight suit, and then you can uh, urinate into this tube that is structured so that inside is either a little bit of a, a sand type of thing that that coagulates I guess I don't know if that's the right word or a sponge that fills up but either way the idea is you don't want it to be able to spill out if it turns over so it it kind of turns into mud or a a full sponge and then you wrap it up it's got a little zip tie kind of thing on it and you seal it up and you put it over to the side of you and when you get back uh, you were supposed to take it down to medical in the on the uh, flight deck and invariably uh, I hate to admit it for the for the uh, environmentalists out there. But most of the time it accidentally got chucked overboard Uh, into the ocean. Now,
1: what about, I assume they have these for women as well that are designed slightly differently.
0: I, I understand it's difficult for them from our U2 guest who was on the show who was a real character. Again, go listen to that one. Um, But there were some diaper type things that they could wear that would uh, absorb it and keep it away from private parts that could otherwise be uh, not, you know, you don't want to sit in that stuff. I guess it's not healthy. So I I don't know uh, these days if if female fighter pilots are doing that or if they have some sort of adapter for the uh, pedal packs or or what they do. But, you know, you do fly some longer flights, so you've got to do something.
1: Yeah. Are there more women today flying as fighter jet pilots than there were back in the day?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a time in the early, prior to the early 90s, where females could not be in combat roles at all. And so you might remember history from World War II, there was the WASPs, uh, and they would fly the aircraft to the different locations and drop them off. But the females were pre- prohibited, prevented. From being in combat. And then uh, later they were flying, but not combat aircraft. And about the time I came in in 1992 is about the time that that was finally restricted or lifted, I should say, that restriction was lifted. And uh, females began to serve alongside males. And frankly, I think that's a good thing because it you know, granted there are dynamics in, uh, the, the ready room of male and female and black and white and anything. I mean, anytime you have more than one person, right. You're going to have some friction. Daniel, if you and I were stuck in a, a, a car for 24 hour road trip, right. You probably I, something I was doing would start to bother you and vice versa. So, uh, yeah. you're always going to listen to some music. I don't like, right, or whatever. Right. Yeah. but when it comes yeah, right yeah. down to it, if I'm fighting another aircraft, I don't care who's in that aircraft. I don't care what equipment they have or the color of the skin. I care what they can do. And if they're going to shoot me down before I can shoot them down, well, then they're the better fighter pilot that day. And if I can defeat them, well, then I am. But um, I I really wish the world would get around to this because I think we still make too big a deal of it. And and before I stop talking on that, because I, I want to be mindful of it, I recognize that there are still... Leftover systemic issues in society, where maybe little girls don't think it's okay to be fighter pilots or aren't told they can, and that people of uh, different races don't have the opportunities. And so, I look forward to the day where that's no longer an issue.
1: I do too. I look forward to a day when everyone can have an opportunity, and the color of your skin or your gender just is irrelevant. Absolutely, and it's just it's just based on your skills, who you are, and yeah, yep. agreed. So you were an instructor at Top Gun, and I'm, I'm really curious, uh, how is it doing that, and how different is it, of course, than you see in the movie? Right. What's it really like?
0: Well, how much homework can we give your listeners? Because episode seven <laughs> was, we titled Top Gun versus Top Gun, and we deliberately did that, although it sounds redundant. The movie is two words, both capitalized or the first letter is TNG and the schoolhouse is one word, all capital, all capitalized, but it's not an acronym. So that's just the way they decided to do it. And so Mm. uh, a good friend of mine who is deployed currently uh, was the commanding officer of Top Gun at the time. And we recorded a great discussion and I even poked some fun at, okay, what? So no volume all day long. And uh, so (laughs) it's totally different. And the point we make, and I make this a lot of places on the fighter pilot podcast is if, movies really reflected reality. Nobody would pay the $10 to go because it would be boring, Daniel. It it would be god-awful. And so uh, they have to make it fun, and hopefully the forthcoming Top Gun Maverick will do more of the same. And we'll have to suspend reality for those of us who have been there because nobody wants to see a three-hour debrief. I mean, you'd go out, you spend five hours preparing for a one-hour flight and three hours debriefing it and maybe the other way around. But... If all you do is sit in the debrief and that's your two hour movie that's not fun, but that's where the learning yeah. happens and so it's 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 very much different and rightfully so
1: so when you're teaching as an instructor, do you know right away if you're dealing with a good student versus someone who's probably not going to make it through?
0: Well, you know, I would defer that question to someone who taught flight school, which I never did by the time you instruct at Top Gun, those people are hand selected and so mm. with rare occasions, most of them uh make it through i guess i what i'm trying to say is most of them make it through on rare occasion we have an attrition and it's a bummer but uh y- you can you can kind of see them struggling and either they get it or they don't and at least at top gun there's a very high standard for the benefit of wearing that patch and if you don't meet it you don't get it and it's 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 unfortunate, but it's that's the way it's gotta be.
1: So that's interesting that by the time they get there, this is like the graduate school of graduate schools. This is, that's you right. have to be cream of the crop to get there. Okay. that's right. Well, the two most important Top Gun movie questions we're gonna ask, and then we'll get off that subject, is <laughs> okay. one, uh, have you ever done the inverted middle finger to somebody while you're flying? And two, have you ever eaten at the Kansas City barbecue Top Gun bar in San Diego?
0: No and yes, but it was in 2000, I think it was, well before I lived here in San Diego. And it's since burned down. Unfortunately, they lost a lot of the original uh, artwork, and I think oh, the original I didn't piano. That. Yeah, but they rebuilt, and I've oh. not been back since. Um, I understand it's a bit of a tourist location, so i no, it's not. Yeah, not something on my list. I, I don't take friends when they come. Uh, we, we go to the USS Midway across the way, which is really interesting, uh, right there on the wall. Yeah, cool. No, I know where it is, but that's about the end of it.
1: Is there a movie that you've seen that actually got? Fighter jet maneuvers and experiences correct or at least close to being right.
0: Well, Top Gun did, and Top Gun Maverick uh, will as well. Now, granted, yes, they did the inverted middle finger thing, which is unrealistic, but the flying scenes were real. And on the upcoming movie, the flying scenes are real. Now, to be fair, they've spliced some together, but it's two real splices that you know look amazing. But yeah, they wouldn't let these guys fly in such close formation as they do in some of the scenes we've seen on the trailers, and so. I think those movies are, are very realistic. Um, Behind Enemy Lines isn't very realistic in some regards. Um, I actually had a chance over... Uh COVID 2020, you might remember when everything was first locked down, some of the different um, online channels were looking for people that had setups in their home that could help them. And so I think it was uh, what business insider and vanity fair, both reached out to me and said, Hey, would you be willing to do some P- fighter pilot reacts, you know, videos for us? And so yeah. we talked about like, Iron Man had some F 22s. If you remember, uh, we even did, uh, what was it? The Incredibles, you know, of course, it's a cartoon, but there's, there's a scene in <laughs> There, where uh, the, the I forget the uh, stretch ladies uh, character name, but you know she's evading some missiles and behind enemy lines and Top Gun and. Golly, what were the other movies we did? Uh, oh, um, the
1: Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, True Lies. Uh, yep, that was the one I was just True thinking Lies, of. Yeah.
0: Which that was a good one too. But yeah. yeah, I mean, again, they they have to they have to make it exciting.
1: Well, I'll link to those videos. Uh, I'll link to that video in the show notes so people can see that as well. Oh, good. Uh, I'm I'm curious. Do pilots age out at some point? Is there a point where like your body just won't take the the g forces and whatnot?
0: Well, uh, that's more of a. There's two questions here. The first one is, the older you get, generally the more senior in rank you get. And the more senior in rank you get, the fewer flying opportunities there are for you. So in that regard, yes. But as far as the effect on your body, some people succumb to the uh, injuries, if you will, of flying a fighter earlier than others. It's not uncommon to have a bad neck Uh, or shoulder or other parts for fighter pilots. In fact, right now there's some hubbub in the news about uh, why are military pilots having higher susceptibility to certain types of cancers, which is not the question you asked. But the point simply being is my neck used to hurt a lot just because you're wearing an eight or more pound helmet that then you're twisting your neck and pulling G's and looking for the guy behind you. Again, if you've seen Top Gun, you've seen Maverick and Goose, right, you know, yeah. kind of stretching around in, in the flight deck there. But um, it, it it can be painful on the body but some people can do it longer there's a gentleman in australia who um, gosh his name is right on the tip of my tongue we're trying to get him to come on the show but i think he's in his early 60s and he's been flying for decades and he's just got the um. you know the unicorn body that can do it and he loved it <laughs> and he was teaching and and so i think he finally retired after i don't know how many thousands of hours but you know some people last longer than others
1: Is it difficult for you to drive, you know, 35 miles per hour or 55 miles per hour? Cause you've gone so fast.
0: Oh yeah. I'm already an old fart. I turned 50 last year and I, I pretty much leave early so I can set a couple over the speed limit and I, you know, that's the end of it. Um, I do still have a sport <laughs> bike though, back to the motorcycle analogy. And when I get on that thing, do you remember that cartoon a long time ago, Mr. Walker and Mr. Wheeler, where they, uh, no. pedestrian, oh, it's a funny one. I'll have to see if I can find it. I'll link it to you. But it, it, it's this whimsical cartoon about this nice gentleman who, uh, gets in his car and he turns into this radical person, you know, and drives like a maniac. And so (laughs) when I get on my motorcycle, I might, I might dial it up a little bit because it's like the good old days, but
1: that's about it. Did you ever consider quitting anytime in your career?
0: No, not really. When I was young, I knew I wanted to be taken care of by the Navy. So I wanted to retire. And I did the the day I retired the next day, I still had medical benefits and I could go on base and shop at the commissary and the exchange and get gas cheaper. And, All that, So I knew I wanted to do that. I'd hoped to be a commanding officer, but the Navy didn't need my services in that capacity. So um, I, I did it as long as I could and had a great time doing it. And I have no regrets. There was a time I thought about maybe leaving the Navy and going to like an Air National Guard unit, but I was too much of a wuss to embrace the change of doing that. So I just stuck with what I knew. (laughs)
1: Well, so today you fly for one of the major airlines and I'm curious, uh, how is it different than flying jets beyond the fact that your cargo is people, uh, you know, and do you like one more than the other or are they just that different? Oh,
0: no comparison. I I would go back to my old life in a heartbeat, except that, uh, you know, it was gone a lot, of course, and then military. Now, maybe I shouldn't say that because there are now companies that fly demilitarized fighter jets for contract for the government and a couple of them have reached out to me and frankly I've said no only because I don't want to be gone any more than I already am but uh, it's it's totally different i mean take a race car driver and put him in the city bus and that's basically what you're doing and so uh, what the airline for me lacks is the sense of nobility and purpose in romance of a fighter, if you will, Um, it's still honorable. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I enjoy doing it. COVID's kind of soured it a little bit for me to be completely honest. I live in San Diego and used to be based in Los Angeles. And then I was kind of put on the sidelines for a while, but they were still paying me, which was great. Uh, (laughs) But now they want to, put me back to work. And so I took a leave of absence thinking, hey, look, let me just sit this out. Uh, You don't have to pay me. But now they said, no, we want you back and we want you to fly from New York City. And nothing against my friends in New York City, I just don't wanna fly five hours each way to start my work day. So I'm I'm still in a bit of a food fight with my company over that right now and trying Mm -hmm. to avoid that. But uh, alas, it looks like they're gonna win. It's either that or quit and that doesn't make a, (laughs) that's not a smart move. So I'll probably have to do that for a little while, but yeah, everything for a season, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, when you look back now at 50 years old, what's the most valuable insight you think you've learned from your careers? Respect, probably. Um, Respect for power,
0: respect for authority, respect for life. Um, I've I've watched friends perish in front of me, uh, which is heartbreaking, and I, I've learned that things go by quickly, and you need to respect that the time you have is is fleeting. I remember as being a young pilot, an old guy came in and said, I would trade anything to be with you, goes by quickly, you know, enjoy every minute. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, beat it. I found myself saying that to someone, uh, I forget what the setting was, but within the last couple of years, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm that guy now. And, um, you know, just just to be present in the moment and respect where you are, what you're doing, even if, Daniel, it's not where you want to be and what you want to do, which is why I'm lambasted. Asking myself about getting all upset about having to go to New York, there's going to be some good that comes from it. I just don't see it yet. But we get a lot of people who write in or call in or, you know, talk to me on the fighter pilot podcast about wanting to be fighter pilots and oh, what happens if I have to fly helicopters or I have to fly these other airplanes. And whenever I have people on the show who who fly those i always make a point to ask them hey did you want to fly this and and what do you think of it now daniel just to to wrap this up i'll tell you we had a a gentleman on the show niles love the guy lives right here in san diego he wanted to be a fighter pilot he ended up an e2 backseater so he's in the tube in the dark working the radar Hmm. and he told me later he loved it he, he, he found his personality suited it. He was good at it. He enjoyed doing it. There was elements of it that, that he thrived in. So uh, what is it called? You know, blossom where you planted or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I, I think people really need to respect the way things go. Call it God, call it Darwin, call it whatever. We are where we are for a reason. and And so embrace it instead of resisting it. And I, I'm I'm not, I'm not perfect at that still.
1: I don't know that we ever are perfect at it. It's something that I also still struggle with a bit and and try to get better at every day, which is maybe the point, you know, but I don't know if we ever have the answer. So if you find out, let me know. Yeah.
0: Well, I think you touched on the exact point, right? Is we're all in this race called life, but it's not a, it's not a race. It's not a, it's not a finish line. What's the finish line? A a coffin? You know, it's the race. And so let's enjoy the race the best we can. And yeah.
1: so I, I try. Yeah. The point of the journey is not to arrive as uh, they say. Yeah, you know? There you go. See, yeah. that's why it was yeah, good. Go, no, please go oh, I was that's just going to
0: say, that's why you're so much more of an eloquent podcast host than I
1: am. So well said. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I'll take the compliment. Uh, as a guy who's traveled so many places in the world and obviously flown so much uh, is vacation for you just being home with the family or do you still like to go places?
0: Well, I'll tell you for a period of time last year, Daniel, I had three teenage boys in my house, (laughs) so Um without getting too graphic, assuming this is a family show, but this is family matters. I mean No, you can be graphic. It's R-rated. It's fun. We had to open the windows. I mean, the house smells a lot. I'll put it that way. My my wife is like a single mom with four boys. I mean, it's ugly, messy, (laughs) smelly. Um, you know, and of course the two older ones have discovered girls and music and everything else. And so I, I won't say my my house is not a place of comfort and rest, although a lot of times it's not, that's true. Um, but I do of course love my family. We work through all the ups and downs and we have fun. Um, For me, if you're really asking, uh, my happy place is on a trout stream with a fly rod in my hand. That is, uh, I find that the water rushing by my legs takes away all my problems, and to fool a gorgeous trout into taking your artificial fly and fighting it and having a, a, an opportunity to connect with his world for a little while and then releasing him again. And, uh, you know, if, if, if the opportunity exists to eat it, I'm, I'm not afraid to do that too, to be honest, but more often than not, the places I go, you have to release them and that's fine by me because then you can catch them another day. That's, that's where my heart flutters.
1: That's cool. Well, if you hadn't been a pilot, what do you think you would have been? Hard to say. Um, I, I, I do pretty well with numbers. I like
0: details and organization and schedules. So again, the military was probably good for me. Uh, I think I could probably do okay in business. I don't know that I'd be good in sales. I don't necessarily like to persuade people, although I guess someone would say the best way to do sales is just to live it, but um, probably something where I could, uh, you know, make a difference, organize things, uh, track schedules and budgets and, and uh, have fun doing it. So uh,
1: probably Mm -hmm. some sort of business. What would be the title of your autobiography? Well, so
0: I, I knew this question was coming and I purposely said it earlier because I ended up saying this, I forget where, um, but someone wrote me for the podcast and said, hey, that would be the greatest title for your for your autobiography. And I thought, hmm, good idea. So by the grace of God and paddles, because <laughs> uh, again, I, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to believe what I believe, but I, I do believe that I've been blessed. And I also believe that uh, a lot of my ability to uh, land on the carrier and do the things that I did was because of people like paddles. And if your listeners aren't aware, that's the nickname for the landing signal officers who are your fellow pilots who stand out on the back of the carrier and bring you home safely day and night. And so I think it's got a good ring to it. And I wish I remembered who suggested it so I could give credit where credit was due, but probably that.
1: I love it. I love it. What was your favorite childhood book?
0: You know, I don't really remember. We used to love The Cat in the Hat and some of the Dr. Seuss stuff. And then when my kids were uh, younger... We used to read Pandora's little whimsical book about a cat who gets kind of out of mm. favor with the parents cause they have a baby. And uh, I always had fun changing the story up cause uh, that one was so ripe for, you know, just changing the story <laughs> a little bit, like beat it cat, you know, and instead of drinking tea, they're drinking <laughs> beer or something. And my kids love that. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I guess if I had to narrow it down to one, maybe Dr. Seuss. Uh,
1: what's a movie you've seen in your life that made you cry or something that still does? Oh, I can I I can cry at just about anything
0: to be honest with you. I, we were watching Brave, not Braveheart, uh, the Patriot, which is basically the revolutionary Braveheart, right? Um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that with uh, Mel Gibson, but he's, Mel Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the young daughter who's kind of you know the mom dies and so she's obviously going through some trouble, and uh, you know poor uh, forget I forget Mel's character name, but you know he's he's trying to win her over the whole time, and then towards the end she finally comes out saying don't leave and talking, and it's, it's I, I always have have a heart's uh, um a soft spot, I should say, for anything where there's that family connection, and I think that's partly because my mother and father divorced when I was very young, and my father mm. was kind of distant, even though he wasn't far away. Um, so I don't know if you ever saw October Sky, the story about the West it's Virginia boys. Yeah, it's of mine all time. too. And I just love yeah. the redemption with the um, yeah. w- with the father and the son. I really love uh, We Were Soldiers as well. It's one of my favorites.
1: And so, have you read the book October Sky? Because it's oh, a little bit different than the movie. But yeah. Is, yeah, absolutely. Say. Yeah, that, I always tell people that's one book that I I got to the end of the book, and <clears throat> when he starts in the in the epilogue, when he's kind of telling you what happened and everything, I was actually crying mm-hmm. so hard reading the book that I couldn't see the words on the page. When I had to like wipe my eyes several times, it was a great great book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, I, I do still get emotional at different things. Um, I really loved Lone Survivor. I read that book twice. As soon as I finished the last page, I turned back to the beginning, started over. Same with Black Hawk Down. And I think, again, I. I just, I just have a, a spot in my heart. Maybe it's because it feels like it was lacking with a father figure that was somewhat missing as a child, but anywhere there's that bond, and it doesn't have to just be between men, um, you know, with whatever, however it goes, just where there's that connection where uh, people have something traumatic that happens or there's that, that connect, you know, that sudden moment of bonding. And, and I guess that's why uh, the Patriot got me the other night, just when the little girl finally connected with her dad. I just thought mm-hmm. that was really touching.
1: Well, how do you think your focus in life has changed as you've gotten older? What was different uh, for you at 20 that's different today?
0: Oh, I'm glad to say a lot because I was a wreck as a young guy. I took, <laughs> and, and I guess, so you've seen a hint of it already, right? I've been sitting here moaning about, oh, I have to go to, you know, I fly for a major airline and they want me to go to New York. Oh, suck it up, buttercup. You know, it's like when <laughs> I was young, I took, I took any apparent uh, uh, travesties on, on my plan as personal. And how could you not let me do this when I, this is what I want to do. And so I was, I was wound up, I think a little tighter when I was younger, tend to internalize things, tend to take things personally, which is funny because we always tell young fighter pilots like, look, you you gotta have thick skin. And so I've definitely mellowed out. Um, I had a rather major uh, life event when I was 39 years old medically that I haven't shared with my own show yet. So I'm not going to give you all the details, but, um, that, that was one of those events where, uh, it could, in fact, a friend of mine just lost his brother, the exact same thing undiagnosed. And that's what they told Mm -hmm. me is had they not taken care of it, I could have just dropped dead mowing the lawn one Saturday. And so, um, I, I think for me, 39 was that pivot point between young and and untouchable and partying all night and bars and clubs and, and things. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't a womanizer, but I I love to live at large. I mean, that was, that's what you do as a fighter pilot. You work hard, play hard. Um, Since then I was laughing at myself the other night. I was watching my clock. It's like, all right, as soon as it gets nine o'clock, I'm going to bed. And it was Friday. And I was like, Oh, for heaven's sakes, that's awful. (laughs) But you know, my young kids are trying to get out there and, take the the torch for me so that's good enough
1: for me. What are your hobbies? What do you do with your off hours? Well, you know one of Besides them Besides fly there fishing. There you go, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um I still like to snow ski, although it's getting harder every year and uh you know um I like to ride my motorcycle. Uh, I've got an old muscle car I like to tinker out with and uh, work on. Um honestly, the biggest take of my time is family and the podcast and and that's pretty much my day.
1: Well, I'm curious, uh, it's eight o'clock at night. You have the house to yourself and you're going to dance around in your underwear or whatever, like Tom Cruise. <laughs> What's uh, what kind of song would you put on? What's your jam?
0: Well, first off, if I'm going to dance around, I'm going full naked because why not? Um, but anyway, <laughs> sorry, man, disturbing. Man. I know. Um, I'll probably take a lot of grief for this, but, uh, Uh, Shake It Off, Taylor Swift. That's a fun one. Mm. I really like that one. If I'm in the right mood. That's a good song. Yeah, if I'm in the right mood, I'll jump around to that. Uh, But then I might turn around and put on System of a Down, which is a little bit like Thrash Mammal, but some of it's not. Um, I really like Pink Floyd. I probably listen to more of that and Roger Waters than anything. And that's probably partly to do with uh, the fact that I'm kind of mellowing with age. Um, although even well, in- and that's
1: the era, that's, that's the music of our childhood too. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. no, about was, same age.
0: So I was telling my 20 year old son, who's really into music, uh, we share a lot of taste, although he likes more of the other stuff that I don't. But um, I told him, I said, when I was in college at UCLA, I think I listened to The Wall all the way through every single day, somehow. Mm. And we'd just have it on in the apartment or while I was studying. But um, I listen to a lot of Pink Floyd or Roger Waters and uh, I love 80s rock as well. My wife and I really love yeah. the 80s music. So it just depends on the mood I'm in. Sometimes I'll actually exercise to mellow music, believe it or not. You know, it's like, it's not just the mm-hmm. speed metal. I just, I'll put on something kind of, you know, heart heart uh, warming. I guess. I don't know what to call it. It actually focuses it you does, quite a bit. Right. I
1: agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah what did you make for dinner last night
0: last night we had one of those uh meal in a boxes that comes to your door uh i think it was yeah. a blue apron actually so if they're listening thank you very much um <laughs> and uh you know you get the instructions out it's got all the ingredients and uh and we put it together and put on some music and have a little fun with it but you know i can i can do okay on a grill i've got a pasta salad i can make and i can probably not screw up spaghetti but other than that i'm i'm no chef what's your favorite food Probably my all-time favorite food is watermelon. That's awesome. A cold watermelon on a hot summer day, man, there is nothing better. I love that.
1: If you could sit down for four hours in an old-timey pub somewhere in the world with any person from all of human history, alive or dead, excluding your own family members or any kind of religious prophet, who would you sit down with? What would you drink? And what's the first question you'd want to ask them?
0: Oh, man. Well, I guess that rules out Jesus. Uh, Let's see... You know, I've been asked this one before and it always strikes me as kind of odd because I tend to not spend a lot of time driving in the rearview mirror. I tend to look ahead Uh, and maybe to my own detriment because I don't really think sometimes too much about what I'm doing right now. And I just released a a blog about that on my own website recently. But um, maybe one of the founding fathers, like what it was really like. I mean, we know the end story now, right? But for George Washington and and all those guys that were, were there at the beginning, Uh, during all the articles and everything they had to go through and and then the revolutionary war you know we have the benefit now of knowing how it ended but what was it really like yeah and and did they know that this idea was going to work and and that in fact we're all men created equal because at the time it sure seemed like certain ones weren't treated equally and so i think i think to sit down with a group of them and and uh, I feel badly that, you know, I don't know about you, by the way, Daniel, when I turn on a microphone, I'm instantly half as smart as I was before. And that's not very good. So <laughs> I'd love to be able to rattle off a bunch more of the names of the people that were there. I don't know. Is there a Patrick uh, somebody and uh, Adams? And anyway, well, um, we'll just stick with George Washington. Exactly.
1: So you and George Washington are sitting in an old timey bar. Uh, what are you going to drink? Oh, I love a good old beer. And I don't know if they had IPAs back then, but that's what I'm on
0: right now. So a, a nice, a nice 8% IPA. Uh, and a pint is going to do me just right. And I think I'm going to ask him, you know, I guess it depends on when we're talking, of course. But, you know, how, how did you know or did you know that this was going to work and or did you just exude the leadership you felt they needed to to know that you had it all together? Because that's one thing not to derail the question, but I think a lot of leaders are just frankly messes of people. I know I am. I mean, people look up to me now that I have this podcast, but I tell them, I'm like, look, I'm a wreck. You know, I'm still bad at things. I still piss my wife off after 20, however many years of marriage. <laughs> I still say stupid things to my kids and my parents. And I, I'm, I'm not amazing. You see a part of me on this podcast, but you know, so I, I wonder these other people that we have these enormous, uh, outlooks of uh, reputations, how do they think of themselves? Well, you know,
1: Thomas, Jefferson, I'll tell you what, I've interviewed people from so many different walks of life and from all different countries of the world. And the one thing I can tell you that there's many things that actually bind us together as human beings, but one of the things that they all have in common, and these are people that are leaders, you know, Academy Award winners, mm-hmm. public you know, award winning authors, all that stuff. They'll all say the same thing, which is if anybody tells you that they have it all figured out, they're full of shit.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: We all just do our best, you know? Yeah. Tim Ferriss
0: has a really good book out called Tools of Titans. It's like 600 pages. It it rehashes a lot of the big names that he's had on this podcast. And uh, there's a couple of people in there that say the same thing. You know, it's like, look, fake it till you make it or whatever the other cliche is. But, you know, don't don't believe people that act like they have it all together or say that they do and don't assume everybody does but figure out what's your strength and work on that and what's your weakness and get someone to help you with it i really loved i listened to a podcast the other day because we all think oh we're going to work on our weaknesses and get better and this show i was listening to uh was with andy stanley um the guy was saying hey look i'm not left-handed i'm right-handed now i could practice getting better writing left-handed and i would probably make some gains but why should I? Why don't I just write with my right hand? And if there's some ch- chore or task that requires it to be written left-handed, let me find someone who's left-handed. And I thought, there yeah. you go. That's the perfect example, yes. right? It's like, I have a natural bent for being right-handed. Let me find someone who can do this left-handed and my mother's left-handed. Yes. So, hey, go
1: for it. Play, play to your strengths. Exactly. Yeah. Vincent, if you could travel in time, where would you go? I
0: think I would like to go back to, I don't even know when, but before Los Angeles was a city. And look Hmm. at the basin that is now Los Angeles, because when you've flown over Los Angeles, now, if you've done it in an airliner, that's one thing. But when you fly over Los Angeles in a fighter, and even at 20,000 feet, all you can see almost in any direction except the ocean, of course, are lights, if it's at night, of course, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. I can't begin to imagine what it must have looked like. Uh, back before then when there was rivers and I I think salmon and if you go back far enough uh, you know different saber-toothed tigers and different things that still bubble up right in downtown LA at the tar pits it's crazy so I think I would have loved to have seen California when there were still 50 pound you know steelhead swimming up rivers and and everything wasn't molested by man. I think I think before, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not a raging environmentalist, but I, I do agree that we've done some damage to the planet. Now, whether that's like a localized bite from a flea on a dog, and as soon as the flea is dead and the bo- dog scratches it, it's over, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that we've, we've we've done some real detriment to certain parts of it, and yeah. it'd be nice to see it in its native, pristine,
1: pre-white man, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. dare I say, uh, condition. Yeah, that would be something incredible to see, actually. I'm curious, what quality in human beings do you most admire? Forgiveness. Mm. I think it's amazing when people can do it. I
0: don't think yeah. all people can do it, and I think I still struggle with it. Um, I'm still a little bit, you know, frankly, bitter at my dad for different things, and there's nothing I can do now because he's gone.
1: Mm. Are you afraid of dying? I think only a fool would say no, honestly.
0: Um, I'll put it to you this way. I recognize I'm going to die, and every time I tell my wife she's going to die, she hates it. And I say, "Honey, hmm. denying it isn't going to help." Yeah, I feel like you do yourself a disservice by denying it. I think you need to embrace it. That day in, day out, nobody knows the time or place, but we're going to die. And, and as I mentioned earlier, Daniel, I've I've, I've witnessed um, death. I've I saw my two friends perish right off a catapult on an aircraft carrier. I actually was the one who discovered my father when he was in hospice, uh, in the middle of the night when he finally slipped. And, uh, I was,
1: was with my father when he passed away.
0: Is that right? And that's something yeah. you don't forget. Nope. So I, I, I wish I could say I have absolute certainty of where I'm going to go next and how things are going to be. And that I would be lying if I said that was true. I have my doubts. Um, the world constantly bombards us to think different things. And and so, um, but mm. I, I, I guess I have faced it, experienced it in a sense, obviously not my own, but you know, been around it enough to know that it's coming and that you need to be prepared and that You might as well live like it could be any time, even though I don't do that. I I try to hope that I do at least as much as I can.
1: So I think... But wait, I want to just comment on that because what I think an important distinction to say on the show is that I actually agree with you that, you know, you should live your life as if it's going to end tomorrow. But the problem is that a lot of people take that to mean like, oh, well, I should just go party and do a bunch of drugs and be crazy. And that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is... To, to love, to love the people around you, to, to cherish your family, to cherish the relationships, to cherish being alive and experiencing this world. That's, that's at least what I'm saying when I say, you know, live your life like it's going to end tomorrow. It's appreciate everything and, and don't let the, don't, don't sweat the small stuff, honestly, I, you know? I
0: don't think I could say it better and I wish I could say I do all those things, but it's, it's again, right? It's the journey. So that's the daily, yeah. uh, that's the daily chore for us is to find a way to do that and make a difference in someone's life. So I think just to answer it more succinctly, to summarize, I think when, if if I know it's near, right? If it's if it's a week away and I know it versus a sudden plane crash or accident, car crash, that any fear I may have is that, Now there's no chance for any hope for doing the things I want to do or making the difference I want to make. And so a smart person would go do that now, right? Hey, I've always wanted to go here. I've always wanted to do this with my wife. I've always wanted to say this to that person who wronged me and forgive them. Um, If I know it's coming and I haven't done it, the fear of, uh uh, uh-oh, is probably the only fear I harbor, I feel like. What do you hope people say about you at your funeral? I hope they'll say that he tried and that he was a good person. I, I personally, I don't, I don't know. I've always, to be honest with you, I've always struggled with believe it or not, self confidence. Um, to the point where my brothers, especially, would get on me about it. They'd say, you know, what's what's your deal? And I'd say it's not that, it's not that I think so highly of everyone else. I think I just don't, for whatever reason, think highly enough of myself. And I, and I wonder if other people get that, and if if they'll somehow comment on that. In the end, I guess I just want people to say he was all right and by all right, meaning he, he did, like, I I don't, I don't plan to be, I don't hope to be, I don't aspire to be someone who's like high schools are named after him, right? Like George Washington or whose legacy lives on and everybody's mourning, you know, flags are half mouse when I'm gone. When when I'm gone, I I don't want it to be a big deal. I want to, I want to be gone. And I want people to say he made a difference. He was all right. And, and we respect the effort and, we're sad he's gone, but it's okay. Let's move on. And so, hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's not grandiose enough. But like I said, I never I never thought of myself too super high. And, and I would say that when the end comes, I wouldn't expect anyone to all of a sudden make me out to be someone I, I wasn't.
1: And not to play therapist, but do you think that your feelings of what you just talked about stem from your dad leaving at a young age? Because that's a hard thing for a young man or yeah. a young woman to experience. And is there a part of you that feels like, well... If I were good enough, dad wouldn't have left because if that's the case, that's not, it wasn't about you. It was never, never about you, you know what I mean? And, And it has nothing to do with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a valid question. I mean, if you really were to lay
0: people out on the psychiatrist's couch, right. Or psychologist, I think you'd find all kinds of things. I mean, I see it in other people and I think, yes, that absolutely is true. I mean, we, we were all deprived the attention of our father, which was made worse by the fact that he was close, but wouldn't give it. And so when I say we all, I mean my siblings and I. Mm. And so, yeah, I think so. So for example, um, I hate being disrespected. Uh, That's the one thing I tell my kids, like, look, you can you can do different things, but please do not disrespect me or your mother. And I think part of that was also amplified by the the Navy a little bit, dare I say. I was fortunate to get almost everything I wanted. I mean, I I didn't get into the Naval Academy, but that was fine. I had a good time at ROTC. I got flight school. I got jets. I got F-18s. I got Top Gun. It wasn't until later on where they didn't accept me to be a commanding officer. and, And that stung, you know, and so I guess there's a part of me that wants to prove myself to the Navy as well. Like, hey, look, you know, you missed out. Or, hey, dad, look, we could have had this relationship. So, yeah, I I absolutely think that deep down, uh, you know, lay me out, really fillet the, 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 the feelings back and find out what's in there. And uh, it, it's probably carried leftover hurt and wondering if some of it was self-induced.
1: What do you think? Well, it's a whole other podcast to talk about what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, but I don't mind saying it because I, the one thing I like to say on my show is it's it's authentic. It's real. It's factual. It's personal. It's, it's like what you see is what you get. When people meet me, they say, Oh, I feel like I know you. I say what you do. You you hear me. This is the real me on the show. And this is the real me now. I mean, uh, yeah. If you, if you watch me, you know, get dressed, guess what? One leg and then the other. (laughs) Well, It may uh, not
1: help. It it may help. I don't know, but for whatever it's worth, uh, I think you're an awesome guy. Well, thank you. I, I will say, if I may address that, that
0: I've, I've, I haven't taken the crazy pill, but the podcast has definitely allowed me to have my own therapy in a sense of yes oh, people people do like me people like what i'm putting out and it's not perfect i mean i make mistakes every single episode me too and yeah. and yeah and it's like it's okay. If they like me, I need to like me. And, and I think I do a good job of that. Now, I've definitely, I've, the, if nothing else, dear listeners, if you struggle with any of these things we've talked about, start a podcast because it's actually quite good for
1: you. I agree completely. It is so cathartic. It is, it is like the, yeah. I have found many answers to my own life mm-hmm. talking to other people. It's fantastic. And it's yeah.
0: never been easier to start a podcast for heaven's sake. You can get a microphone on Amazon for 50 bucks. You got a laptop. It's probably got GarageBand or else you can get Audacity for free. And then yep. you can upload it. It's super easy, people. I agree. What superpower would you choose? Oh, flying. Like Superman. I mean, come on. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically, uh, uh, pretty much do that in an F-16. It's it's like being on the tip of a rocket and, and uh, the thing is so powerful. And, and uh, the F-18, with the way the canopy closes, there's this little metal bar right at kind of at the top of your head. Um, and it, it somewhat occludes the view Well, the F-16, the whole canopy comes down together and it's just like sitting out in space. So it's really close, but yeah, to be able to fly like Superman, I think it's gotta be as good as it gets.
1: That's awesome. If you could tell your younger self anything, what would it be? Chill. don't don't, don't worry everybody says this every single person over the age of 40 says they would tell their younger selves to just relax enjoy life more i wonder if it just wouldn't work you know
0: no because i think if you found the 20 year old vincent and you said hey your 50 year old vincent says chill what do you want to tell him dude get back in the game you old geezer you know get fired up get out there get get excited about something yeah yeah. Yeah, exactly so i think chill not so much as don't have the uh energy and passion um I think passion was a word that was used to describe me a lot at different times. I think it was a polite way of saying, all right, you know, if we can get him going the right direction, it's great. But otherwise, he's a bit of a wild card. Um, But, you know, I I think to, to roll with the punches maybe is another thing I would say. Right. So that's kind of a longer term for chill. But just just realize that, again, as we said earlier, it may not go exactly the way you want to go, but it's going to go the right way. Whether you think so or not,
1: yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well said, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. Well, Vincent, what do you think is the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life is to try to
0: figure out the meaning of life. I mean, uh, you, you can you can take so many different way uh, looks at this, right? One is, well, we're only here for a short period of time. We might as well live it up, right, and just party like you were talking about earlier. And and who cares about tomorrow? And uh, squander your whatever gifts you have and, and wealth that you may have, and just go live it up. Uh, what was it? Live fast, die young, have a good looking corpse. The, the other is on the more religious or philosoph- philosophical side is we're here for a reason and we should pursue what that is and, and, and do it. And then I think for everybody who's kind of stuck in the middle, it's, well, I don't know. And it's too hard of a question. So I'm just going to do this, right? And I think it's why I'm no psychologist, but I think it's why people will stay with an abusive spouse, Or or loved one, because uh, I guess maybe I shouldn't call loved one, but you know, uh, abuse. uh, They stay in abusive relationships, I should say, because they just they're. they're, I don't know. People don't like change or whatever, or the 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 job sucks and it's it's ruining their life, but they don't have the the gumption, for lack of a better word, to get out of it and go do it. And I I think I think really what people should do is, what is my purpose? Why are we here? What are we doing? And and what can I do if if my job is simply to serve as a support for someone else, then okay, that's maybe what I need to do. But if if you feel like there's something more there, there's a tugging at your spirit or whatever it is that you need to go figure it out, then go figure it out. And, and I, I commented on that earlier. Um, if for people who think they want to go do something, and I use, the of course, the military thing, you know, you don't want to be sitting in some office looking out the window wishing or wondering. Go, go try it and figure it out. Now, obviously, you have to temper that with certain things you can't just jump off a bridge with no parachute or bungee cord and say you want to go try it but but for for realistic things if there's a if there's a tugging at your spirit on being a singer or you know walking somewhere crazy or running something or riding a bike or whatever it is uh don't don't deny that because i have to think i'm not there yet but i have to think it's going to come back and haunt you when when you are on your deathbed someday
1: well i mean they say at the end of your life you only regret the things you didn't do not the things you've done
0: well i hope that's true um But but that can be that can be difficult, too, because especially like my situation. Right. We talked earlier about fly fishing. I really love the mountains and that's where I would love to live. But we live in San Diego. And so I keep dropping little hints every now and then, like, hey, let's move up to Lake Tahoe or Jackson, Wyoming or something. And, you know, that that's that's a pretty significant uprooting. So for me, I love the occasional trip because it kind of scratches that itch. But, uh, you know, I think there will always be that longing. And so in the, in the grand scheme of things, I have to temper it with, this is where our family has chosen to settle down and, and, uh, that's, you know, got to make the most of that too.
1: Well, yeah. Compromise definitely factors into that, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, life is too short not to, uh, at least have goals and dreams, and if you want to live in Wyoming at some point, then put on. The, maybe when the kids are grown, you guys will retire there. You know.
0: Well, I have. So. I have told my wife that uh, I'm probably not going to win husband of the year for this, but when we first moved back to San Diego, because uh, we'd lived here before. Our youngest, I think, was in fifth grade or something, and I said, "Hey, look, because the schools were a big draw for coming here. Uh, I said, "Look, I'll live here for eight years. After that, I'm moving to the mountains. I hope you come with me." And I think she <laughs> I think she understood the uh, the implied joke, but we we have talked about if we continue to uh, and this is going to be our best decade for earning. so if we can afford to do it, uh, we'd love to get a cabin or, you know, share something with another family, let's say, somewhere in one of those locations I already mentioned where we can get yeah, away. Maybe
1: you'll end up flying a helicopter in, in Wyoming for somebody <laughs> or something.
0: Yeah, you know? well, I don't have any helicopter time, so probably not. But, you know, just to be able to get up to someplace where they're skiing and fishing and lakes and mountains and trees and all that, that that's that's where I think I'm meant to be.
1: Well, Vincent, before we do the last thing on the show, <clears throat> I have to tell you that you know the name of my podcast, Memories of a Moonbird, that I don't know if you're aware, but a moonbird is a real bird. It's a red knot. And it was nicknamed a moonbird because its migration pattern is so long that in its lifetime, it flies from the south of Patagonia all the way up to the Arctic. And it does this every year. Crazy. It flies so many miles that it can go to the moon and back. And so they nicknamed it moonbird. Ah. And so... I was, I've traveled a great deal in my life and at some point, Jolene and I were talking and I was explaining to her how much I've traveled and she looked at me and she said, you're a moonbird. And so I've had a few people on the show who have flown or, or traveled so many miles in their life that they are also moonbirds. And I want to tell you that you, sir, are also a moonbird with the number of miles you have flown. All right. So,
0: well, that is an honor so I will wear proudly, Daniel. Thank you very there much. There you
1: go. <laughs> well, the last thing we do on the show is a little game I have called 299, philosophical and life questions with Moonbird. I have this list of fun philosophical life questions, 299 of them, but you get to pick two at random and you give me your two favorite numbers and I'll read you those two questions.
0: Well, let's go with 18 since that's not only the airplane I flew, but the day of my birth. And (laughs) then how about, uh, I was
1: going to go 213. but Yeah, 213, perfect. Okay, number 18. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert?
0: Both. I don't think you have to be one or the other. Depends on the setting. I used to be more introverted when I went by my first name. Uh, since I've begun going by my middle name, Vincent, I've actually become less introverted and more outgoing. Um, if depending on the type of setting, the party, the type of people there, I might sort of hide in the corner or I might work the crowd. So uh, I think I've got ai I don't think it's binary. I think I can be both.
1: That's cool. Number 213. Could you live without the Internet? Oh, yeah. Easily it's
0: called the trout river
1: (laughs) now the podcast would go away and uh
0: some people might be disappointed but you know at some point on that note you know i'll turn 51 later this year so this is a a young person's activity and the longer i'm away from it as far as my recency goes the less relevant, I will be. So at some point we'll have to talk about a secession plan for the fighter podcast, but until then, yeah, I do need the internet for uh, the, as I like to call them the drug addicts I've created
1: because people start (laughs) listening to the show and they need a hit and I give them a fix every 10, uh, 10 days. That's awesome. Vincent Aiello, I can't thank you enough for being here. You are so cool. And thank you for talking all things fighter jets and of course, real life.
0: Well, you're welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. This has been uh, quite therapeutic actually. So I appreciate. and
1: applaud what you're doing for people out there, even if it's one by one. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And friends and listeners, if you'd like to check out Vincent's amazing podcast, go to any major podcast platform and check out the Fighter Pilot Podcast or visit fighterpilotpodcast.com. And while you're out there surfing the web, why don't you head on over to patreon.com forward slash Moonbird and show your support for this show so we can keep making cool episodes like this one. And if you'd like some more Moonbird in your life, and hey, who wouldn't, why don't you fly yourself on over to Memories of a Moonbird .com or visit me on social media at Memories of a Moonbird. Stay safe.